Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. In today's episode, Dr. Tarman interviews Dr. Ken Berry. You may know him best from his YouTube channel, or you may follow him on Twitter. He is a consulting doctor on the Diet Doctor website as well. Dr. Tarman and Dr. Berry discussed the lies my doctor told me, as well as sugar and sweet taste addiction. Also, you may want to listen in to find out what a proper human diet is and why it might or might not work for you. Welcome, Dr. Berry. Okay, welcome to uh, Food Junkies Recovery from Food Addiction, and I'm Dr. Vera Tarman, one of the hosts for uh, the podcast. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Ken Berry, author of Lies My Doctor Told Me. Dr. Berry is a family physician who has been practicing in Tennessee for over 10 years. I'm sure it's been much longer than that by now. He has a YouTube page with more than 1 million subscribers, and he's on the expert panel of Diet Doctors, which is a, a wonderful resource of website uh, website for a list of physicians and physicians and clinicians who are interested in using low-carb food plans as a way to treat obesity and diabetes. On that website, Dr. Berry defined himself as a previously fat, miserable, ignorant doctor who at some point in his medical career dramatically changed his views and his food plan to keto and carnivore uh, style, uh, lifestyle. So Dr. Berry, I would really like to start with just asking you, what was it that made you transform from that fat, ugly, miserable family to Hector being told all the lies that I was told too um, in medical school and in, in early practice and still in our, in our journals to this maverick, or in your words, a contrarian who questions these lies. So what was your story? What was your aha moment? Well, my aha moment was when I realized that even though I was following the guidelines, I was getting sicker and I was getting fatter. That that was really my wake up moment because doctors always secretly uh, fear that our patients are being non-compliant. That's a big word that doctors like to use. And so I would counsel my patients, you know, eat, eat lots of whole grains, eat lots of fruit, drink organic fruit juice, you know, all the stuff, avoid saturated fat, never even think of bacon, much less eat it. And then I, I just, in my mind, I pictured them going home and laying on the couch and eating Cheetos and, and drinking Pepsi, right? And so the reason that every every three months or every six months when I saw my patients, they were fatter and their diabetes was worse and their fatty liver was worse and their blood pressure was worse, I just assumed they were being non-compliant because I, it never occurred to me to question the advice that I was giving them about nutrition and prevention because I'd learned it from professors who I greatly respected. I'd learned it from textbooks that were several inches thick. I'd learned it from the American Health Association, the American Diabetes Association. And so when I started to become morbidly obese and pre-diabetic myself, uh, I was eating a pretty good quality diet, but it was still standard American, you know, but, but I just added lots of whole grains and cut out the saturated fat. And I was getting steadily fatter and sicker. And so I thought I need to tighten up I, I, because it, it really, 
it's impossible for me to talk a talk and not walk the walk. And so there was just no way I was going to be this fat doctor that walked into your exam room and proceeded to counsel you on how you need to eat and how you need to, what you need to do to be healthy. That's just, that's anathema to me. I could never do that. And so I had to fix me. That was mandatory. And so I really tightened up and started following the American Diabetes Association's recommended diet for for pre-diabetics and type 2 diabetics. And I started jogging two or three times a week, which I abhor. And after three months of that, my hemoglobin A1C was worse. It was two tenths of a point higher. I got up to 6.2. And I said that that there's because I couldn't accuse myself of noncompliance, could I? Yeah. Because I live with me. Yeah. So that left only one option. Well, two, either I was schizophrenic and just off my noodle or the advice that I had been following, also the same advice I'd been giving all my patients was somehow wrong or incomplete or uh, didn't have the the desired effect that I thought it should have because I was following it stringently and getting fatter and my A1C was going up. So that was kind of my watershed moment when I said something, uh, you know, I'm from Tennessee. I said, something ain't right here. Something ain't right. I got to figure out what's going on. How did you, from a, a doctor in Tennessee, find the diet doctor or find your carnivore food plan? So uh, it was a slow progression for me over several years. I started out initially following a a paleo, primal, ancestral diet, which helped a little bit, but it was still way too high in carbohydrates for me. Sweet potatoes, quinoa, spaghetti squash, all you can eat because it's it's paleo, right? But I didn't really, and I was was really trying to follow not a plant-based paleo, but it was a very vegetable-heavy paleo had very little, a little bit of improvement in the A1C, not much improvement in the waistline at all. And during my my study, while doing paleo for two or three years, I kept reading about this ketogenic diet. And I kept thinking, what is that? That sounds new and experimental and faddish. What is all this about? And so the more I read, I thought, well, maybe I need to just cut my carbohydrates. Maybe that's the problem. I didn't understand the mechanism at that time. You have to understand this is just me going, well, hell, nothing else has worked. I'll give that a try. And so immediately I started, my my waistline started to shrink on keto. My A1C started to go quickly back to normal. Uh, But other things, my my severe daily heartburn started to get better. My rosacea started to get better. My knee arthritis, which I thought was chronic and progressive because of an old basketball injury. I thought I'm going to have that for the rest of my life. There were days when my knee barely hurt. And I, I was like, wow. So I kept kept following the ketogenic diet for probably a year. And then I, I started recommending it to my most morbidly obese patients. And they uniformly came back with weight loss and improved A1Cs. But they would also come back with these anecdotal stories of my eczema is better. Is that, does this diet do this? Uh, my arthritis is better. My lower back's better. My depression is much better. Does this diet do this? And back then I had no idea what we had stumbled on as, as a group, not just me. But I would say, nah, I don't think so, but I think it's safe to keep eating this way if you want to. Because at that point I'd been eating keto for 15 or 18 months and I hadn't died. And uh, all my lab values were, were steadily improving. So I knew it couldn't be that bad for you or there'd be evidence in my lab work. Uh, and then finally... Uh, so everything was 80% better on keto. Yeah. And I saw this crazy doctor named Sean Baker, who was just, he ate only meat. And I was like, what? But then I got to thinking, well, you know, lowering the carbohydrates really helped. And a carnivore diet is is technically the lowest possible carbohydrate intake you can have. 
So I thought, hmm. So I got on my Facebook page and I said, hey, guys, let's do a carnivore month. Let's do a carnivore challenge. We're going to do it for a month and just see what happens. Nothing's going to kill you in a month, right? And at the end of that month, my heartburn, which was 80% better on keto, I'd went from taking two Nexium every day when I was on paleo and before to taking an occasional Tums or Rolates one or two days a week on keto. And at the end of this carnivore month, it occurred to me one morning when I was getting ready for clinic, I haven't had heartburn in a month. And to anybody who's ever had chronic, severe, unremitting heartburn, it's terrible. And that that in and of itself, I was like, wow, I think I'm going to do this another month. So at the end of the month, I ended the challenge for everybody else, but I kept doing it because I was like, anything that makes my heartburn go away, how can that possibly be bad? And so I've been doing carnivore ever since with uh, very few cheat days. And my cheat day is I I cheat on carnivore with keto, right? So a cheat for me would be some Brussels sprouts and some cheese sauce maybe. But on day in and day out, I eat lots of fatty meat that, and I eat it until I'm completely comfortably stuffed. And so, it's it's been an amazing journey. How long has that been since that started? I know that your book came out last year, your second edition, but how long was your journey? Oh, uh, seven years total as I progress. Okay. I took forever in paleo. Uh, really, I believed in paleo, but I did, it just didn't give me the, the results. And now looking back, I realize. It was too, the carbohydrates were still too high. There were still okay. too many. I was eating Ezekiel bread because, you know, that sprouted bread. Yeah, yeah. Paleo. And I would eat uh, probably six slices a day of, of, of Ezekiel bread because it's, it's sprouted. So that made it magically somehow made it okay to eat. Right. But I, I should have been counting the carbohydrates. And so as soon as I went keto, the weight and the A1C started to plummet. And that was my immediate feedback. Oh, it's the carbohydrates. Somehow, I don't understand yet. But in the in those years, I've been reading deeply in nutrition and uh, preventative medicine, and also in in anthropology and paleoanthropology and paleopathology, and uh, have have found so many ways that this all ties in together that I've started to call this way of eating the proper human diet. Yeah, you know what? Before we get to the uh, mechanism behind how that works, you were saying uh, some of the things that you found. When you started to do that, what was your cholesterol like? Did it get worse? Did it get better? Because this is my cholesterol on paleo was a little high. Yeah. And my cholesterol went up on keto and has stayed up on uh, the carnivore diet. My total cholesterol is about 350, and my LDL cholesterol is about 250. Okay. And what about, this is one of your sort of lies that you challenge. What about the idea of um, a lot of people that eat uh, keto say that they have problems with constipation, but in your book, you talk about how fiber is actually one of the um, uh, lies that we're told that we need fiber. So do you want to comment? What was your experience with that? Just Yeah. So back when I was eating the standard American diet and and then the paleo diet, not to be too graphic, but I was having several uh, trips to the bathroom a day and they were remarkable in Uh in the volume that Uh I was passing. Right. And then as I transitioned to keto and then ultimately to carnivore, uh, I used to have lots of gas back in the day. It was terrible. I could clear a room. I Uh had very large movements when I'd go to the bathroom, Uh, very lots of cramping, very uncomfortable, all that kind of stuff. But But it got much better on keto and now on carnivore, I have zero complaints in all those departments that I previously mentioned are substantially better. You're not and, constipated. Uh, that's, just, with, that's on a zero fiber diet. Wow. That's amazing. 
So on a zero fiber diet, like very few carbs, you don't, you're not constipated. Not at all. Well, wow. what happens is when you're eating a, a real whole food ketogenic diet yeah. or a carnivore diet, every food, every bite of food that you eat is so nutrient dense. It's so full of fatty acids and amino acids, vitamins and minerals yeah. that you absorb almost all of it. And so when you're having toast and, and Wheaties and orange juice and a bagel, all that stuff is full of stuff that your body can't even digest. And so yeah. you wind up having these ginormous bowel movements. Right. And and we're actually taught that's really he- healthy. You want to have the huge bowel movement that smells so bad it clears out the entire apartment. Right. But that's actually not true at all. And and just the other day on my Facebook page, I, I posted a, a question. How have your bowel movements been on the carnivore diet? Anybody have constipation? And there's hundreds of comments that huh. literally say, all my bowel problems went away. All my gas problems went away. My IBS went away. My Crohn's went away. Just over and over and over, hundreds of people. And, you know, it takes it takes a little bit of effort to post on, you know, to answer a Facebook question. I don't yeah. think those people would just be going out of their way to yeah. make up a lie, to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people to say that. Yeah. And so it looks as if fiber is not only non-essential, it seems like that in very many humans, it's quite inflammatory to the bowel. Uh-huh. And also it gives the gut microbes lots of stuff that they can make lots of stinky gas with. Uh-huh. Because that's another recurring theme in the carnivore community is that no one can tell when I pass gas anymore because it doesn't uh-huh. it has no smell. Right. But man, let me just tell you, when I was eating the standard American diet, that right. was not the case. Let's move from the bowel stuff and, and talk about the food stuff. So that you were you were about to say something about your, I think you call it the uh, proper... You tell us about it, the proper yeah. So the diet. more I studied this and researched it, especially as I started to dig deeply into paleoanthropology and paleopathology, yeah. I realized that in that community, they've known for decades that human beings 50,000 years ago, 100,000, 200,000 years ago, we were meat eaters. We uh-huh. ate so much meat that we actually had our stable isotope analysis was it actually classified us as super carnivores. We ate more meat than wolves and foxes, and they're, they're carnivores. And so not only were we eating lots of seafood and lots of meat, we were also probably eating the carnivores themselves. And so it, it, when I learned that key piece of information, but, but, and then I realized doctors don't know that. Doctors don't study paleontology, right? They don't have access to that literature. They don't even know that they should be looking there. Mm-hmm. But when you t- when you tie the results of everybody on a keto a ketogenic diet, especially a meat heavy ketogenic diet, or a, a ketovore diet, it's what my wife Nisha calls it, or a carnivore diet, uh-huh. the reason that so many of the chronic complaints, the chronic symptoms, and the chronic progressive medical conditions get better or go completely away, is because that you've removed all of the slow poisons that are part of the modern standard American diet. Okay, it's but let's full uh, of poison. It's full of sugar. It's full of grains. It's full of yeah. vegetable oils. It's full of all these chemicals. Most of the food is made in a chemical factory. Yeah. When you stop poisoning a human being like that and start feeding them what I consider to be a spectrum of the proper human diet, all of these chronic conditions, they turn out to just be manifestations of the slow poisoning that's occurring so from eating all the, the junk. What, and when you remove he, the poison, yeah. magically, the animal gets better. What is a proper human diet then? Is it just carnivore? Is it just meat? Or is it more than that? 
Well, I think there's a range for different yeah. people from uh, sure. different uh, ethnic backgrounds, different parts of the world with different gut microbiomes. Uh, my definition of the proper human diet is, is by definition, a low carbohydrate diet, regardless of what other criteria you put on it. But I think that it can range from a pretty vegetable heavy diet that could be full of eggs and seafood if you wanted to be an ovo-lacto vegetarian and uh-huh. add some cheese. Uh, but it would still be a low carbohydrate diet. So you would eat only the lowest carbohydrate of the, the plants. And that could range all the way to the opposite extreme of being a fatty red meat carnivore diet uh-huh. with, with eggs and butter. And that's pretty much all you eat. Anywhere on that spectrum, you're going to be eating a very nutrient dense diet full of minerals and vitamins and amino acids and fatty acids, which is what your body's looking for, right? Your body's not looking for starches. It's not looking for fiber. Uh, There's no essential carbohydrate. There's no essential fiber. You don't need them. You don't need to eat them. And so on that proper human diet spectrum is where everybody notices that their blood pressure goes back to normal or close to it. Their blood sugar goes back to normal or close to it. Their weight starts to return to normal. All these things start to happen, plus a host of other chronic medical conditions improve somewhat, if not drastically. Yeah. Uh, is it possible to be a vegan on your uh, on your concept of a proper human diet? Did you say bacon? No, vegan. Uh, oh, vegetarian. vegan. Well, the, the problem with a vegan diet is it's impossible to make it a low-carbohydrate diet. If you're eating a vegan diet, plants are essentially much uh, less rich sources of nutrients than animal-based foods, right? And so you would have to eat pounds of kale to get the nutrition that you would get in just a few ounces of beef liver, uh-huh. right? And so you're going to have to eat so many pounds of food a- as a vegan in order to get all the iodine you need and all the B12, and you're going you're gonna to have to just eat and eat and eat three or four meals a day with snacks in between. Uh-huh. You're, you're basically will be living the life of a gorilla. You're just going to eat for 16 to 18 hours every day in order uh-huh. to get enough nutrition because that's what your body wants. That's why you eat is for nutrition. Uh-huh. But in order, but but plants are so nutrient void, even though they're called superfoods, right? If yeah. you compare the nutrition in in kale to beef liver, the beef liver kicks kale's ass all over the parking lot. There's it's not even a competition, right? So you would have to eat so many carbohydrates to get the nutrition that your body's actually looking for. It would wind up being a very high carbohydrate diet. Now, let me say, I think a vegan diet is less bad, is less unhealthy than the standard American diet. Yeah. I do believe that 100%. If yeah. you went from uh, a sad diet to a vegan diet, you'd probably notice some improvements in some of your health markers. You'd probably feel better for a while. But the problem is, is unless you're committed to eating 18 hours a day and taking a handful of supplements every day, after a few months or a few years, you're going to start to develop multiple deficiencies in nutrients that your body absolutely has to has to have. So you may feel better initially, but after a few years, the vitamin and mineral deficiencies and the, the omega-3 fatty acid deficiencies are going to start to rear their ugly head and uh, vitamin and mineral deficiency and disease are soon to follow afterwards. Since we've already mentioned a couple of your the lies that you challenged, one of them is the idea of uh, eating meat and the potential for cancer. So you challenged that, like the idea of grilled meat. Uh, yeah. uh, like grilled steak as being a potential for cancer. Do you want yeah. to elaborate so, a little bit on that? It looks like humans have been cookie, cooking their food over fire for yeah. over a million years. 
And if anybody's ever tried to cook meat over a fire, mm -hmm. it's impossible to do so without getting a char on there. And th so that was my first common sense thought. If we've been eating charred meat for, for over, you know, a, for a million years as hominids, then how is it now? How have we discovered, ooh, that's really bad for us. That'll give us cancer. Seems like that would have caused the problem well, a long time ago, right? And so then I thought, well, I need to look at the research that shows that red meat causes cancer, that processed meat causes yeah. cancer, and that, that you know, char-grilled meat. I need to look into this. And what I found was is that 100% of the research that suggests this, if you actually read the studies, they use words like may and mm -hmm. might. And they don't say does or, or will. They say might and may. Right. Because it's epidemiological research. It doesn't show any causation at all. It's impossible right. the way the research is designed. Okay. And the researchers are mostly honest about that. If you read their abstracts and read these papers, they're saying they say much more research needs to be done on this. But it appears that red meat may increase. And then when you look at the actual data, it's a relative risk of one point two one maybe 1.3 which if anybody who's studied statistics knows that's just background noise that doesn't show anything the right. epidemiological research that showed that smoking increased your risk of lung cancer that had a relative risk of 20 to 30 yeah. and these guys are trying to pin cancer on red meat with a relative risk of 1.2 it, okay. it just makes no sense and so i've kept looking for controlled research for randomized research there is literally none in the books, none. There's no research that proves that grilled meat, raw meat, processed meat, any meat increases a human being's risk of cancer. There is no research that proves that. Okay. All right. The next question I want to ask is, uh, this is something that a lot of athletes say, uh, you know, the idea that you need to um, carb load before you do a marathon or you do some kind of major workout. <clears throat> also question that. Yeah. Uh, do you want to elaborate on that one? Well, that was a very popular fad uh, yeah. a few years back, but it's quickly falling out of favor. And previous proponents of that, including Professor Tim Noakes and Dr. Michael Leeds, they were they they used to believe that was absolutely mandatory for uh -huh. optimum athletic performance. You had to carb load and carb during the the competition, but they both uh, changed their mind as have multiple other athletes and athletic performance experts. Uh, also, uh, Mark Sisson used to be quite the athlete, quite the uh, long distance runner. Yeah. He believed in carb loading and he and the sugar gels and all that. And now he he now at his age can his performance is almost as good as it was when he was a young man with no carb loading whatsoever. And more and more ketogenic athletes are coming out to be competitive bodybuilders and in competitive in other uh, sports. And they don't carb load at all. In fact, they eat a, a very low carb, almost a zero carb diet. That's where they find their optimum performance is. So, yeah, the the sugar, the carb loading was a hugely popular fad. Uh -huh. But again, there's no research to back that up. And people are daily disproving it uh, anecdotally over and over and over. So do you think that we need to do any kind of sugar just like for fuel for the brain, not necessarily carb loading, but just fuel? <laughs> Well, there's this process in every human liver called gluconeogenesis, Yeah. right? And so if any part of your body needs glucose, your liver can make it on a second's notice. It can make a lot of it really quickly if you need it. The only cell that I've ever been convinced that absolutely has to have glucose is red blood cells. There might be some certain cells in the human brain 
There might be some cells in the human testicle that need glucose, but the jury's still out on that. That has not been proven conclusively, but red blood cells don't have a nucleus. They don't have mitochondria, so they, they have to have glucose for energy. And that's true. And so, yeah, there is no essential sugar. If our body, if our brains needed sugar or we would, to, for us to eat it or we would die, yeah. I would have been dead how many months ago? Because I've had not one grain of sugar in 18 months. And my performance now by, by every measurable variable is better than it was 10 years ago when I was eating a paleo diet full okay. of carbs. Okay. So, you know, uh, what I've been asking you about here are some of the uh, lies that you outline in your book. Uh, and then your challenge to that. I would like to, uh, we would be amiss with our with our specific interest in uh, food addiction and sugar addiction. I didn't ask you about that. Do you think that sugar is addictive or is that another lie that, uh, or myth that people are promoting? What's your take on that? Yeah, I think there's ample uh, research in both rodent and human models that it's it's pretty much established that sugar, and not just sugar, but but even sweet tastes, uh-huh. can be uh, habit-forming and addictive. And, and I'll say a lot of this research was done in rodents, but we have never found a substance that rodents can become addicted to that is not, not also habit-forming in human beings. So there's never been a rodent model where they got addicted to beef liver or ribeye steak or egg yolks. That, that doesn't happen. It's only sweets, whether uh, nutritive or non-nutritive. That's what, the, that's what they will literally hit the little lever for more often than than cocaine. Uh-huh. And so I, I also believe there's ample evidence to assume that highly processed grains are quite habit-forming and addictive as well. Uh, they're long chains of starch, which breaks down into sugar. Also, uh, many of the grains will actually, uh, are partial receptors, they, they actually partially activate the opiate receptor in the human brain and give positive feedback both with the opiate receptors and with dopamine and perhaps even oxytocin as well. So I think where we're at right now as a society is where we were back in the 1990s with the tobacco companies. You remember the congressional meeting where all seven of the CEOs sat up there in front of Congress and said, I believe that tobacco is non-habit forming. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. They all had to say that under oath. I think there'll come a time in the near future where the CEO of Kellogg's and Pepsi and Coca-Cola and Mondelez will sit before Congress and they'll say, I believe sugar is not had it forming. And then when we subpoena their documents, we'll find research that they did decades ago that, that they knew without doubt that sugar and highly processed uh, grains are habit forming in human beings. I think they know that right now. Uh, it's such a great profit model. They don't really want to give up on that. You can't make a profit like they make. They make a thousand percent markup, right, on their products. You can't do that with beef liver or eggs or ribeye. You might make 30 percent markup if you're lucky, but they can make a thousand percent on all the subsidized crap that they make their little little candy bars and their little shakes and crap out of. So they're not interested in changing that business model or they'd have to uh, lower the 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 uh, remuneration for some of those CEOs. But I think that when we subpoena their records, we'll find that they've known for decades that sugar and grains are habit-forming in human beings. Okay. Well, speaking about habit-forming, what about the idea? So you challenge the, the, uh, another central tenant that salt is something that is okay to eat and we, we shouldn't <clears throat> not salt our foods. But there's other people who say salt is addictive and fat is addictive. So what's your comment about salts and fats? 
Well, I think salt and fat are addictive in the same way that uh, water and breathing air are addictive. Every human's addicted to breathing air, aren't they? And every human's addicted to drinking water in some form. It's like we all need to go to rehab because of our water habit and our air habit. So, yes, there's definitely a drive in all mammals to make sure they're getting enough fat. There's a drive in all mammals to make sure they're getting enough salt. I don't think that the the white-tailed deer that will walk two miles to find a salt lick or a, a muddy, a salty mud to lick, I don't think that deer needs to go to rehab. I think that deer knows uh, at an unconscious level they need some salt because salt is good for them. Right. I saw a video once of a, of a billy goat, uh, some kind of wild goat, and her little baby lamb climbing up the sheer face of this dam because about 200 feet up, there were certain rocks that were very rich in salt. And so the, the wild goats would climb up this dam and yeah. lick those salts. And so this, this uh, nanny goat was putting her sweet little innocent lamb at risk uh-huh. because of her salt addiction to climb this, this dam and lick the salt. And she even let her little baby lamb lick it as well. Uh-huh. But And so I'm being sarcastic, obviously. Yeah. I think that all mammals need salt. Salt is good for mammals. It's not bad for us. Yeah. Uh, there's there's example after example in, in of every species with salt-seeking behavior. And it's not because all of the animal kingdom needs to go to rehab. It's because we need salt and it's good for us. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, usually in addiction, the, the context is that there's a drive, but there's it's a drive into impairment and inability to stop. And mm-hmm. my experience with uh, salt and fat is we really only see that behavior in the context of sugar as well. So when it's salt, sugar, fat. Uh, so it's, it's all three of them together. That's that's. <clears throat> Yeah, and I, I get your point, and it's well taken. But you could also say that same thing about salt and and water and breathing air. You could say it's the combination of the three, or you could just stop all that foolishness and say, no, it's just the damn sugar. That's what yeah. it is. Yeah, I you, agree. You need, so, you need water. You need air. Yeah. You need salt. You need fat. Those are essential for human life. Yeah, and please. so I think it's just the damn sugar. Yeah, so when you have patients coming in and they're doing their salt uh, and and higher fat, um, they're not overdoing it on that. They're not getting sick on that in the same way as they would if it was a sugar diet. That's right. All of their lab values are are pristinely normal. They feel better than they felt in a decade usually. And most people with an addiction, they don't they don't they don't report that they feel better than they felt in 10 years. You don't usually hear that from somebody who's addicted to an actually a harmful substance. Okay. So, so um, uh, just for people listening, uh, this book, uh, I mean, it takes a lot of these concepts that we've been talking about and challenges them. So now what I want to ask you is how have you had, what's your response been to the book? Like how have patients received this information, these challenges, and then of course, how have doctors received it? But let's start with the patients. Do you have people doing pushback? Well, I mean, I have a few patients who say, you're telling me to eat bacon and butter and egg yolks. I I think you're crazy. I'm going somewhere else. And that's fine. That because very often a year or two or three later, they come back and say, okay, I'm ready to listen now. I wasn't ready before Mm -hmm. that. That happens occasionally, but most people are like, uh, they look at me like, are you, you're telling me I can eat as much ribeye and, and as many eggs Uh and I can eat till I'm full. I don't have to portion control or calorie restrict. I'm like, yeah, that's right. Try it for a month and see what happens. Try it for three months and see what happens. Because any diet, if you try it for three months and and you're hungry all the time or it just doesn't work, you gain weight like I did on the American Diabetes Association diet, 
you're going to say to hell with it. It didn't work or whatever, right? But if you, at the end of that three-month trial of keto, ketovore, carnivore, if you're like, man, I lost a lot of weight and I'm never hungry. If I'm hungry, I just eat more meat. That's uh-huh. awesome. But also my blood sugar is better. Also my blood pressure is better. Also this and this and this and this and this are better. Why would I ever stop this? Yeah. Well, do and you I've had your- multiple patients ask me, doc, can I, can I do keto for another month? And I'm like, yeah, you can. Yeah. Yeah, what about what about relapses? Do you get people relapsing saying, uh, uh, oh, I can't do this. I want my bread or I want yeah. my... So yeah. just like any addiction, there is a certain percent of people who relapse. And yeah. as soon as they relapse and go back to eating the bread or the sugar or the sweets or whatever it is, drinking the Pepsi, they immediately feel miserable. Okay. Not only do they feel like, oh, I, man, I, you know, I fell off the wagon. Everybody feels bad when they fall off the wagon. But they're like, no, you don't understand. I physically am miserable. My guts are miserable. My joints, my everything hurts. I don't feel good. I feel like, keyword here, I feel like I used to feel. And that's when I point them to my YouTube video. If you fell off the keto wagon, here's how to get back on. They watch that. They forgive themselves because we're all humans. We all fail occasionally, right? And uh-huh. they get right back on the keto train and they can they just shoot you right towards better health, and it works so what, out what, great for them. What, what is it that that video says? What do you tell people? Like, how do you treat this uh, this relapse or this uh, persistent addiction? You have to watch the video. <laughs> you can't give me one tip. <laughs> well, I, I think the biggest tip that I talk about in the video is immediately anytime you fall off the wagon, whether it's alcohol, whether it's nicotine, whether it's yeah. a sugar addiction. Yeah. You you feel terrible. You're ashamed. You're embarrassed. Yeah. You're beating yourself up. You feel guilty. And so I think probably the most important thing I say in that video is, is uh, it happens to all of us. People who quit cigarettes, they don't quit on their first try. They may lie and say they did, but they didn't. I promise you. It took several tries. And so, yeah, you fell off the wagon. OK, congratulations. You're human. Now uh-huh. forgive yourself and get right back on the keto train because okay. good health is just right up there around the bend. You just okay. got to keep going. And I think just the, the fact that people can look in the mirror, number one, and say, I'm a sugar addict. Duh, I am 100%. And uh-huh. then number two, look in the mirror again, right in the eyes and, and say, I forgive you. I'm, I'm human. I'm weak. I made a mistake. It's fine. I'm not going to beat you up about this. Uh-huh. We're going to get right back on the train towards good health. Do you try to get them to uh, do some sort of therapy or, or uh, anything like that? That's one of the last things I mentioned in the video. I Uh, think that for some people, sugar addiction and processed carbohydrate addiction are so powerful that they do need to seek out the help of an addiction counselor or some other kind of addiction help. Yeah. And I mentioned that. Okay. And what about the folks that say, well, what about sweeteners? Can I get away with that? I'm I'm pretty sure I know what you're going to say, but say it for the audience. You mean like the keto-friendly sweeteners? That yes. Sort of thing? Yes. Those, uh, uh, fruit. Oh, those, those oh, bombs, right? Those yeah. keto bombs. As you know, in all addiction, there's a bell curve. There are some yeah. people who could drink a six-pack of beer for two months and then walk away from it and never think of it again. There are other people that can drink two six-packs and they're hooked and they have to go to rehab three times to break it, right? Right. Each of us has a different threshold of of addictive behavior. And so some of us, I think, can use the keto-friendly sweeteners and it does not bother us at all. It it doesn't wake up that monkey on your back, so to speak. And you you can take it or leave it. It's no big deal. But I think others of us, because remember, much of the rodent research was done with non-nutritive sweeteners, right? Saccharin uh-huh. and the like, and saccharin doesn't taste nearly as good as stevia and monk fruit, uh-huh. but the rats still developed addictive behavior, but to the sweet taste. 
Yeah. And I think that's because back, you know, thousands of years ago, you had to eat the sweets in the in the late summer and early fall yeah. to gain the fat. That's what sweets are for, to put on the fat with the berries and the fruit so that when the winter came, you didn't yeah. starve to death. Right. Right. And okay. some of us are better at putting on that fat than others, as, as okay. we well know. Some yeah. of us are much more likely to become addicted in that loop than others of us. And so I think we just need to know who we are. And okay, I'm one so, of those people, I just need to leave all sweeteners alone. Yeah. Because if but, I start out with, with stevia and monk fruit and erythritol, before you know it, I'm looking for the for the little Debbies and the Ho-Hos. Okay. Okay. So in the interest of time, I got to ask you, the, the medical response to your book the, and to your approach, what has it been and how do you manage with this? Well, I've had quite a bit of kickback from other healthcare providers, but have. now I've had a surprising amount of healthcare providers reaching out to me and saying, Hey, I've been doing keto. Don't tell anybody, but I've been doing keto and it works great for me. And I really want to talk to my patients about it, but I'm scared to death of the medical board. That's, that's actually exactly what the I was going to ask you. Uh, that's exactly what I was going to This is not yeah, a and so 90% of healthcare providers, when they reach out to me, yeah. they want to know how do, you, how do I teach this to my patients because they've already been doing it themselves. But right. I have had a small amount of kickback. And it's usually from cardiologists and endocrinologists. Yeah. That's who I usually get the kickback from. Like, yeah. what you're doing is dangerous. You know, you need to cease and desist, or I'm going to report you to the medical board, all this kind yeah. of stuff. And I'm and I, I have one question every time a healthcare provider or a nutrition expert reaches out to me with that kind of negative message. I say, show me, show me the research that you're basing it on, that keto's bad, that carnivore's bad. Just I mean, if you show me one study in humans of controlled research that proves that keto or carnivore is dangerous or bad, I'll quit recommending it immediately. I'm not married to this. It's just my opinion that the science supports this way of eating more than any other way of eating. That's why I've started calling it a proper human diet. Okay. Uh, but, but you haven't had any fear of litigation or anything like that? Well, I'm, as, I, as I say in my bio, I'm a little bit of a contrarian. Yes. And so I actually would welcome a lawsuit oh, from gosh. Kellogg's for defamation. I would welcome if, if the medical board wanted to take my license for recommending a proper human diet, they could come and get me. And if they wanted to make me the American version of Tim Noakes or Gary Fetke, I'm right here. I'm waiting. You're a brave man. Okay. Uh, you use the term emin eminence-based medicine versus evidence-based medicine. And I suspect it has something to do with what we're talking about. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that concept? Yeah. So evidence-based medicine, when, when the concept first came out, it was very uh, sexy. I yes. thought, ooh, yeah, I want that. I want, I want to only recommend things to my patients based on evidence, right? Yeah. Yeah. Any good healthcare provider should want that. But right. if you look at the hierarchy of evidence-based medicine, at the very bottom is something called expert consensus. And that's right. considered evidence. But right. it, that's not evidence. That's just a bunch of old gray-haired men in a room deciding what they think. That's not evidence. So that shouldn't even be considered evidence, right? And, uh -huh. But it is. And so a lot of um, recommendations, they will say this is evidence-based medicine. But you're like, okay, show me the research. Let me see the evidence. It's that the Harvard School of Public Health recommends this. And you say, yeah. okay, well, what, what research? There is no research. Or there's some epidemiological research that proves nothing. That's not evidence. And right. so I love the concept of evidence-based medicine, but, if it's yeah. truly based on evidence. But, but in many cases, it's not. 
but the, the fact that it has to be peer reviewed that right right away right there that suggests eminence based doesn't it because it's the it does peer. exactly right and and a peer review does serve a purpose yeah when you're doing controlled randomized research to make sure that you did control properly and you did randomize properly yeah. but how are you going to peer review an epidemiological study where people just filled out multiple guest questionnaires what, what what is there to peer review with that it's it's bunk research to start with. It's meaningless. It's been shown in other studies that yeah. food frequency questionnaires give you no meaningful evidence that can be yeah. used to, to draw conclusions. So how do you even peer review that? I don't even understand how that's possible. Okay. we got two more minutes, and I want to make sure we uh, move to the next topic, maybe the last topic, which is you've got a message. You've been very successful in promoting your message. You've got a book out that uh, talks about this, a very successful YouTube how do you get your your uh, uh, patients uh, and others to promote this message? Because I mean, it, it, you know, you're you're speaking against the food industry, which has no interest in listening to you or supporting you. So I, I know you have this concept called uh, learn, lead, share. I'm suspecting it's got to do with that. But those of us listening who want to be advocates, help yep. us. What can so we do? the first thing you do is you use the proper human diet to fix your own health. Now let's say that you. We're currently morbidly obese and type 2 diabetic and yeah. had terrible uh, rosacea because of your diet and terrible arthritis. All of your friends and family, they know that about you, right? And they see you every day and you're miserable. And they see you taking your handful of pills. And then you go keto or ketovore or carnivore. And six months later, one of, one of your friends or loved ones who hasn't seen you in six months, they see you and they're like, what the hell happened to you? You look great. Yeah. My, in my opinion, there is no advertising firm on Madison Avenue that can come up with a more powerful message than when a friend or a loved one sees you and they haven't seen you in several months mm-hmm. and their eyes bug out on stems and they're like, what are you doing? You look amazing. And you say, I'm doing keto, I'm doing carnivore, whichever, whichever spectrum of the proper human diet you're doing. And they're, uh, then, uh, then when they've seen your example, you leading by example, immediately they're like, how do I do it? Can I do it too? Yes, you can do it too. And then you get to teach your friends and family members. You don't need an MD or a PhD to uh-huh. teach this because uh-huh. it's just eating real food that comes from the proper human diet spectrum. That's all it is. You don't need to be a registered dietitian to teach that. Stop eating crap and eat real food. Well, you know what, Dr. Berry, just just uh, hearing how passionate you are and how good you look, I mean, you're a great example for this just by yourself. Um, that's what I, that's what I'm trying to do. And let me just say, yeah. I don't think my success is due in any great part to me as an orator or I'm, I'm good looking. I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think 100% of my success spreading this message is because it works. That's the thing. Right. And when your family and friends see you, and they're like, oh, my God, I got to get me some of that. Yeah. <laughs> and I just happen to be the voice that they listen to because I, I'm the voice out there in the wilderness. But they don't they're not listening to me for me. They want what their friend got or what their loved one got. They want some of that. Yeah. And in the process, they might get a little bit of me. OK, right on. Thank you. Molly, do you want to ask our last final question? I do. So I just want to say thank you so much, Dr. Barry, for being here. You literally were the first doctor in my life, so to speak, that actually told me the truth when I was early on in my journey. And I just thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to thank you for that. Um, I have I have just three quick questions for you. 
what is your next project? What are our listeners? What should they be looking for? What's the next big thing? So I, I put out about three new YouTube videos every week. I try to. Wow. And so always be on the lookout for a YouTube video. Subscribe and, and click the bell so you get a <laughs> notification. And then also I'm working on a second book tentatively titled The Proper Human Diet. Excellent. Awesome. How do our listeners find you? So we know Dr. Ken Berry, Google or search that in YouTube. What else? Where else should they find you? Yeah, just uh, YouTube. Dr. Berry is going to find me. Facebook, I have a large page where I post very often. Uh, if you're looking for the snarky side of Dr. Berry, slapping Kellogg's and, and Mondelez and, and Coca-Cola, yeah. find me on Twitter because that's where you'll see me getting in slap fights with the multi-billion dollar food corporations. Okay. Uh, if you want a more loving version of me, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, I'm I'm on Vero, I'm on, uh, gosh, all of them. So it sounds like just a Google search maybe. Of you. Yeah, <laughs> We're going to yeah. find it. Just look okay. for me on your fa- favorite social media. I'm there. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. So then our signature question is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself anything about sugar, processed foods, and their addictive and destructive qualities, what would you say? If I could go back to my my 25-year-old fat self, and I, I would just say, dude, human beings have been on this planet for a long damn time. Do we know what they ate back then? Do we? Because if we do, that's probably very important. And I think just that one key piece of evidence, if I could have given that to myself 25 years ago, that would have changed. I would have started doing what I'm doing now years before. Because once you add in the paleoanthropology, to the medicine and the nutrition, and you bring it all together, this is this this picture is obvious. It is not in any way cloudy or muddy or obfuscated. It is quite clear that human beings are designed to eat lots of fatty meat and maybe a little bit of veg. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Barry and uh, Molly. I really thank appreciate you. your your, uh, your time to do this. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, ladies. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.